can open your Bibles, please, there at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, on page 668 of our church Bibles. Going to look at the subject of abundant life every Monday morning at 7 o'clock or thereabouts, your alarm rings. You hit the pause button, and at four minutes past 11, your alarm rings, and you hit the pause button. For some people, it's half past five, and some people don't hit the pause button. But you get up, you shower, you shave, you eat your shredded wheat, and at eight o'clock, you set off to the office. In the office at nine o'clock, you start working hard, and at five or maybe six, you knock off work and you set off home. You eat your dinner. You watch some television. You go to bed and you make sure that your alarm is set for 7 o'clock the next day. Tuesday morning, 7 o'clock, your alarm rings and you go through exactly the same routine. And the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and the next year, and you get so bored by it all. Why don't you just stop? Well, you can't stop. You've got to work so that you can earn some money, so that you can eat, so that you can live, so that you can go to work next week. But you're fighting a losing battle, and you know it, because you can't stop the inevitable. The clock is ticking. You know the story, the pit and the pendulum? There we are, tied in the dungeon, and time is running out. Sometimes it comes much sooner than expected. Tony told us of the car crash. I almost had a car crash some couple of years ago now. Caroline and I visited Mark and Natasha, and we had Alex with us, and we were coming home, and we were coming down Howarth Road and just turning left to go along Columbia Road, and we looked, and there was... Uh, nothing coming, it was safe for us to pull out, so we pulled out. But coming towards us in the 30-mile-an-hour zone was a car, and then a lad driving about 60 miles an hour decided to pull out and overtake just as we were pulling out of the junction. One hundredth of a second earlier, and it would have been a horrendous smash. We don't know how close... We are, but what we do know is that one day our heart will beat its final heartbeat. We will take our final breath. One day, all of us. Yet our society doesn't, won't even consider it, just hides its head in the sand. It won't face the facts. We, as a society, we live a lie. When I was at college, this dates me, the, the cult reading in those days was Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And if you ever read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's got people with such wonderful names as Ford Prefect, Zaphod Beeblebrooks, and Artie Slartfast, and others. And it's worth reading just for the nice names. But the worst punishment that a person could be given... We've got a picture that goes with this. The worst punishment was to be put in the total perspective vortex because they said when you saw yourself 
in the total perspective of the universe and you saw how utterly insignificant you were, it would send you mad. But people live the lie, pretending their life has meaning, refusing to see things in total perspective and trying to forget that death is absolutely certain. Some people just drop out. Do you remember Jim Gurley? Remember his story, how as a young man he decided that he was going to stop going to work and he was going to um, take the opium trail to India and he was going to get high on drugs and he was going to avoid reality and he was going to live happy all his days. So he set off and he said the joy he had that first day to know that he didn't have to go to work again. And that he's just set off on, you know, on the life, the dropout life, the druggies lifestyle, and found that it didn't work at all. He was soon so utterly bored, he longed to go to work. He was like a hamster, desperate to get back on the hamster wheel. It might be going nowhere, it might be a waste of life and energy, but it was better than not being on the hamster wheel. Meaninglessness is unbearable, and we need to be distracted from the meaningless of our lives. And today, in the face of atheism, the new atheists, people have looked at the wars that have been fought in the name of religion, and the awful things that have been done in the name of God, and they tell us, they say, you are better off without God. They said, we need God like a hole in the head. And as a society, we like to hear this because we want to be in charge of our own lives. We don't want to be accountable to anyone. And so we reject God. And we find that our meaningless life is not only meaningless, now it's also hopeless. It's going nowhere. And the philosophers have given us what's called the philosophy of despair. They say we're all on the ship and the ship is sinking in the sea and we're all doomed. This is the philosophy of despair. So Heidegger, the, the philosopher, he says that he will stand on the bridge and salute as the ship goes down because that's the noble way to be. Okay, the ship is sinking, society is doomed, but he's going to be standing there saluting. Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre says, not at all. No, he says he's going to go down below deck and he's going to play another hand of poker while the ship is sinking. That's what he's going to do. But there's no hope. We're all doomed to live in despair. Reminds you of Jonesy on Dad's army. We're doomed, we're doomed. That, that's it, I'm afraid. Is that it? Is that what life is about? No, shouts the book of Ecclesiastes. Life without God is like that. But there is a much better way to live, where you can enjoy life in all its fullness and have the hope that is great and glorious and certain. And all this can be yours now and from now on. So as we look at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, we see, first of all, that we have a great teacher. Here in verse 1, he doesn't tell us his name. 
Although it's obvious who he is, he is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. But he doesn't tell us that. However, he does tell us three things that are important about himself. He tells us, first of all, that he's the teacher. If you know the story of Solomon, you will know how he met with God and God gave him wisdom, exceptional wisdom. He became the wisest man who had ever lived. And as you read this book, you will find that his wisdom wasn't the ivory tower wisdom of a, a philosopher just uh, pondering things up in his study. But no, th this wisdom is forged in the fires of experience and this wisdom is inspired by God. That's why his book's in the Bible. He's not a philosopher gazing into the dark. He's a teacher who's been enabled to know what he writes about. Secondly, he's the son of David. And as we will see in a minute, not simply the king's kid, not simply a guy with a privileged upbringing, but he's a picture of the Messiah. And thirdly, he's king of Jerusalem. He was the leader of God's people. He, he was a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is the teacher. We've looked at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives the greatest teaching ever. And Jesus is the Messiah, the great son of David. And Jesus is the king of kings. Solomon tells us how to enjoy life in all its fullness. But it's only Jesus who makes this possible. We can happily follow Solomon's teaching because Solomon was a picture of Jesus. Solomon is a great teacher pointing us to the greatest teacher. So we have a great teacher and secondly, we have a great lesson to learn. This is verses 2 to 11. I said a great lesson to learn. Actually, you have three great lessons to learn and it's vital we learn these because these lessons are a bit like switching the light on in the dark. You know what it is when you go into a building and it's totally dark or you go to someone's house and you ask, well, where, where's the bathroom? And they say, oh, it's through there. And you go through there and it's so dark, can't see anything. And then you're looking around for a light. You switch the light on and suddenly everything becomes clear. Well, these lessons... All right, switching the light on in this world. They make everything clear. In a meaningless, materialistic society, the light switches on. And the first thing we learn is in verse 2, where we learn that life without God is insufficient. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. This is the great motto of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's here right at the beginning. And if you go to the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 8, what do you read? You read exactly the same. This is the motto. Problem is, it's very hard to translate. Our version says meaningless. If you know the authorized version, it says vanity. That's right, vanity of vanities. Another modern version has the work, word smoke. Nothing but smoke. And the word Solomon uses is the Hebrew 
hebel, which means vapor. The steam from your kettle. Have you ever saved that in a little box, you know, to give someone for a Christmas present? No? The spray from your deodorant. My grandson, he, he, you know, my daughter's got one of these, um, you know, bubbles. When we were kids, we used to have a little thing of bubbles and just uh, blow a bubble and hopefully it wouldn't explode and it would make a bubble that would float or something. But these days you get, she's got, it's, it's like a gun and you fill it with all this um, soap suds and you, you pull the trigger and bubbles fly everywhere. It's great. And you can see the little boy's eyes, all these bubbles. Fantastic, loves bubbles. They're here and then they're gone. That's it. Bubbles. Meaninglessness. I like the illustration of sandcastles on the beach. And I like that illustration because I love making sandcastles. And I remember with our kids when we would go on holiday to Cornwall, we would go to Kynance Cove and we would make sure we got an enormous pitch before all the horrible tourists came to try and fill the beach. And we would make walls around this huge area that we had selfishly uh, taken for ourselves. And we would make turrets. And we would have a great big uh, mound in the middle and a castle on it and, and tunnels underneath it and get buckets of water and have a moat around it and flags and shells. And we'd make the most wonderful sandcastle in the world. And then as the evening was coming, the tide was going to be coming in, we would pack everything up and we would start walking up the long path from Kynance Cove up to the car park. And I can remember looking back at the castle we had made, that magnificent piece of architecture on the beach. Hours of work. And there were some teenage jobs just jumping over it and kicking the towers. And then the great big castle was made in the middle. They were just jumping with both feet in and destroying it. But, you know, it didn't make any difference because in a couple of hours the water was going to come in and the tide would have washed it all away anyhow. It just wasn't of any significance. It was just meaningless. It was just so superficial. And says... Uh, Solomon here, meaningless. He says, your life is like that sandcastle. You may be decorated by diamonds or you may be being destroyed by disease. You may be uh, neatly designed or you might have been kicked about by the yobs of life. But ultimately, it makes no difference because it isn't going to last. Your life is temporary and insignificant. It's a vapor. It's a puff of smoke. That's it. Without God, puff of smoke. First thing to learn, life without God is insufficient. Secondly, verses 3 to 7, nothing can reach the goal. Not only is life without God not sufficient, but life without God is also not profitable. 
Not only does it not satisfy, but it doesn't achieve any lasting benefit. Look at verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? The answer is nothing. No real lasting benefit, no real lasting profit. And Solomon gives us four examples of this. First of all, in verse 4, people. Generations come and generations go. As one generation is being born, the previous generation is passing away. And on and on it goes like this forever. You can't hold on to life. When I was a minister in Broadstairs, we had a lady there who said she wasn't going to die. She said people die because they give up the will, the will to live. And she wasn't going to give up the will to live. And we all went to her funeral. You can't. Can't hold on to life. That, then the illustration of the sun, verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Round and round it goes, or rather, round and round we go forever, never reaching the destination, <laughs> never getting there. And then thirdly, verse 6, the wind, back and forth it blows. Wind blows to the south, then turns to the north, round and round it goes, never reaching its destination. And then water, verse 7. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. There it is. The streams flow into the sea, uh, and the waters of the sea are evaporated, uh, and they form the rain, which falls onto the hills, that forms the streams that run into the sea, that evaporates, and round and round it goes forever. Apart from God, life never reaches its goal. It's if you're on the global hamster wheel, life is not profitable. I was very interested when I was in India some years ago that um, being their guest, they thought they should take me to some important places and they took me to a museum and they said, would you like to go in the museum? So being polite, I said yes. So they stayed in the car while I went in <laughs> and everything was just the circle of life. Do you know how we at a, a grave site, we have lots and lots of crosses? There's just a circle, round and round and round and round and round it goes, getting nowhere, never reaching the end on the global hamster wheel. That's it, life is not profitable. There's something missing in life. It's as if you go to the car showroom and you can see all these lovely cars and you can take your choice. You can have a Rolls Royce. You can have a Maserati, you can have a Ferrari, you can have a Lamborghini, or you can get your Mini, or you can have your Skoda, or whatever you want. The choice is yours, whatever you like. But it's got no petrol. You can't drive it, can't take it anywhere, doesn't go anywhere. And that's people's lives. Without God, that's what it is. You know, some people are born with a, a better standard of life. But it's still a meaningless life. Still not going anywhere. And then thirdly, not only can we never reach the goal, but it won't quench the soul. Life without God is not only insufficient and not only unprofitable, it is also unsatisfying. 
the eye never sees enough. You don't go blind and you say, well, it doesn't matter. The ear never hears enough. There, there is a desperate longing for something more to satisfy us. You can have all the money in the world and it doesn't satisfy you. When John D. Rockefeller, who had so many millions, I think he was the world's first billionaire, someone said to him, which million gave you the most happiness? He says, the next one. <laughs> you know, just not satisfied. You can have all the money in the world, but it won't satisfy your soul. Then, looking at the most beautiful scenery, for a while it's lovely, but after a while you just get accustomed to it. It just loses its thrill, and your soul is still thirsty for something more. So Imelda Marcos bought how many pairs of shoes? Was it 1,000? Was it 6,000? But it made no difference. She still didn't have enough. And men have affairs. The millionaires never have enough. Life is like a massive meal. Have 11 courses. And you stagger through it, and you are so full at the end of it. You think, I'm never going to be hungry again. But come the next day, you're hungry again. It doesn't satisfy you permanently. Well, is there nothing that will satisfy us Without God, no, says verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. Well, maybe in the future, maybe someone will invent something in the future that's going to satisfy us. No, says verses 9 to 11. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So you can go and get the latest computer games from uh, W.H. Smith or Tesco's or wherever. You can get Minecraft or um, Grand Auto Theft 5 or Call of Duty or whatever people are playing these days. You say, wow, these are the best games ever. They're just games. They're just games. Just a variety of games that people have been playing forever and a day. And games don't satisfy. Well, maybe they will invent a new mode of transport so that we can fly ourselves around. We can put a jetpack on our backs and just travel around that way. Well, that's just a modern mode of travel, just like riding the donkey in the old days. It doesn't satisfy, as someone has said. You can travel to the moon, but all you can do when you're there is look at the earth. Life without God doesn't satisfy and it doesn't profit us and it isn't sufficient. So when someone tells you you need God like a hole in the head, you say, no, I need God because I have a hole in my soul and I'm going to a hole in the graveyard and only he can make me whole. So Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, the girl at Samaria, she has a messed up, empty life. And she has tried this and that and found that it doesn't satisfy. It just leaves a bitter taste in the mouth. And, and it's just made her more thirsty and more lost. And Jesus points to the well and he says, you drink that water, you'll thirst again. Nothing in this life 
can save you and satisfy you permanently. But Christ can give you living water. And if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. You will be satisfied. You will be saved forever. Your soul is made whole. Your future is made secure. Your life is made profitable. So remember the studies we had in the book of Philemon. The slave was anesimus, which means profitable. But he wasn't profitable, quite the opposite. He was a robber. He was a loss. He was a disaster. He stole from Philemon and he ran to Rome and he, he squandered and spent the money on himself. But in Rome, he heard the Apostle Paul preach. And he learned how Jesus Christ can make us new. Jesus Christ can give us new life. Jesus Christ can make us clean. Jesus Christ can give us a new heart. Jesus Christ can satisfy the soul. Jesus Christ can make us right with God so that we have a great hope for the future and we are citizens of the new heaven and earth. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, he makes us new people. Indeed, he makes everything new. And so Onesimus repented of his rebellion and sin. He trusted in Jesus as his saviour and Onesimus was made new. And Paul sent him back to Philemon saying that he had now become profitable. Profitable to Philemon, profitable to Paul. But Christ not only gives us life that is satisfying and profitable, but Jesus Christ gives us eternal life, not eternal existence. We all have that. But the life of God, life in all its fullness, life with a capital L, glory. What Paul calls an eternal home in heaven. And it's not having a materialistic lifestyle because Paul, rotting in a prison jail, chained to the wall, <coughs> with his back bleeding from his beatings, he knew that glory, that joy unspeakable and full of glory. It comes from God. It doesn't come from this world. Do you need God? Most definitely. Ecclesiastes ends, chapter 12 and verse 13. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is Old Testament, before Jesus Christ had come. And it's telling us that we've got to be right with God. We've got to live with God. And we can do this right now. We can be right with God. Jim Gurley found that. You remember his story? He found that living the dropout uh, opium trail lifestyle didn't satisfy. So he came back to Europe. He went to Amsterdam in search of happiness there. He stayed in a hostel in Amsterdam, which was the cheapest hostel around. It was called the Shelter. He didn't realize it was cheap because it was run by Christians. <laughs> and there he learned about God and Jesus. And he learned that God had created him, Jim, for a relationship with God himself. And life can't satisfy without that. Our sin has separated us from God. But Jesus Christ has done something. And Jesus has dealt with our sin. And his death has paid the penalty for us. And as the mediator, he has 
made a way for us to go back to God. So we can now be reconciled to God. We can be made new. We can have a life that is satisfying. And one day, Jim says, that while he was mopping the floor of the hostel, of the shelter in Amsterdam, Jim Goulet realized it was true. He put his faith in Jesus Christ. And he began to drink of that living water and experience that life, which is life in all its fullness. And as you know, since that day, he studied philosophy and history and now spends his life telling others that Jesus and only Jesus can satisfy our souls, forgive us our sins, and give us abundant life. Jim has found this life. Now Solomon will tell us more about it and our need of it, and I'll explain more, God willing, next week. But you don't have to wait any longer. Here and now, you can drink of that living water. Here and now, you can experience the mercy and grace of God. Here and now, you can turn to Jesus Christ and you can take him, your teacher, your king, your saviour.